Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, should managers have a creative side? And what could they learn from the likes of Pixar or the producers of Friends? My next guest thinks that they should be both creative and open to learning lessons from the arts. Welcome, Adam Kingle. He's the author of Sparking Success. Adam, you're very welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Firstly, you might tell us a little bit about yourself and your background uh, before I know uh, Sparking Success was your second book, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. Well, I'm uh, an author, uh, an educator, uh, keynote speaker, and advisor. Uh, I, as you can tell from my accent, I'm originally from the US, but I've lived in the UK for 24 years. Um, I am on the faculty of a number of institutions, including the UCL School of Management uh, and Holt Business School here in the UK and the Irish Management uh, Institute at uh, University College Cork. My okay. first career was in theater, which is why I'm so interested in the where the blendings are between the arts and business. That's very interesting. And, and if we go to your book then, uh, Adam, uh, Sparking Success, you, you, t- you say that business can learn from creative industries on maximizing their innovation capability. Let, let's just chat about that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Well, b- because of my first career, uh, when when I think back on what are some of the most creative organizations that I've worked with, it wasn't actually that they had creative people or that the industry that they worked in happened to be in the creative arts, but their leaders were actually doing some things differently. They had different micro habits about the conversations that they were having with their colleagues, how they led meetings, how they did brainstorming, um, how they designed their organization, how they incentivized their people, etc. And I thought surely those habits could be applied to people in any industry. So my hypothesis for Sparking Success is, could you apply the habits of the playhouse to the warehouse, uh, uh, essentially? So that's sort of where it all came from. Um, And if we look at, uh, I suppose, the way traditionally managers learn, uh, maybe we learn success from our business leaders. Would that be one of the reasons because of where we learn our success that we're maybe not really willing to take risks around us? I think that's a fantastic point. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of how management is practiced is purely for, through experience and precedent. So all of a sudden, there's this magic moment where a person is is promoted to, to a position of leadership. They might be managing one person or 12 people. And then they're thinking, okay, well, what do I do? I haven't been trained for this leadership business. Uh, I've just been a very successful individual contributor. And they probably will imitate the leaders that they've had before, assuming that that's the right way to go. So it's very hard to question management assumptions because of that common habit that uh, understandably too many uh, leaders practice. You give a great example in the book of a homeware company trying to reimagine a lamp. Could you maybe walk us through that? I just thought that was quite interesting where you match, you know, maybe what would Jackson Pollock do? How would Salvador Dali look at it? Um, Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, th- this sort of came from uh, one of the artistic media that that I looked at, which is uh, the culinary arts. And what I realized is that some of the most successful chefs in the world, uh, they maximize their creativity by simply combining existing ideas in new ways. You know, such as for a really quick example, like 
combining a flavor like wasabi to mashed potatoes. Now, some yeah. people might be excited by that. Some people might be offended, but that's the idea. And, and when, I, when I was thinking about how might that apply in a brainstorming meeting in a business context, uh, I was saying, well, why don't you apply the lens or the perspective of a famous person or artistic person to your brainstorming process. So if you were trying to invent a new desk lamp or with an exciting new design, rather than say, well, how do you do a desk lamp? Maybe ask the question a little bit differently and say, how would Salvador Dali design a desk lamp? So maybe the uh, the, the column of the lamp is sort of uh, coiled in and around itself. Or if you, as you say, if you say, well, how would Jackson Pollock do uh, a lamp? Maybe the lamp shade is, is spattered with paint and, and different colors. Uh, or if you say, how would Tesla design the lamp? Well, of course, initially, that means you're not going to plug it in. It's going to be maybe very long battery life, etc. But all of a sudden, if you don't use the perspective and the paradigms of your team or your organization or your department, that alone can unlock lots of potentially new, uh, exciting value-add ideas. I think that's a great idea. Um, what about then, I suppose, leaders then and the humanization of leaders where there's now an expectation in the modern workplace that leaders have to be human. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's absolutely right because this goes back to my point around management is often relies on precedent. I think one symptom of that is that we're lost in terms of what leadership is supposed to look like. We know that the world is changing very quickly. A listener might be thinking, well, sure, Adam, there are changes in, in the environment all the time. But I think the number of things that are changing all at once is new. And I think one of the solutions to navigate that turbulent world is for our leaders to be more human-centric in order to give purpose and inspiration and guidance and, and clarity and calmness to, to their people. The problem is, going back to my point around precedent, when we think about what is what are our typical management models, they are still derived very much from the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution, despite the fact that so many industries would really define themselves to be in the knowledge economy. And, and, and even though our technology has evolved and our organizational design has evolved and our world of work has evolved, the way leadership happens is ancient. You know, a CEO from 1860 could step into a company today and they would be very familiar and comfortable with what the CEO is doing in terms of their leadership act. I think finally we need an injection uh, of creativity and meeting the moment in, in how we lead today in order to be suited for today. Isn't there a danger though as well, Adam, that you know, if I'm a leader in a, in a fairly traditional business, maybe employing a couple of hundred people, and I decide one day, okay, I'm going to be creative. And I come in the next day I, and I have this whole creative mindset. That's likely to cause chaos, is it not? So <laughs> there's got to be so much more around deciding to be more than creative. Yeah, I think the, the, the primary responsibility of a leader is to create an environment in which creativity can thrive. So you're right, it isn't the leader coming in and creating mass chaos, you know, by proposing, why don't we invite chickens into the office? Why do we need a roof in, in the office, etc.? But but when how do you create an environment where anyone, particularly uh, and, and colleagues who are close to the customers, 
will suggest great new ideas. Because too often, as leaders, we rely on controlism, uh, explaining why ideas don't work. And if we keep saying no and yes, but to every myriad idea that our colleagues propose, after a while, we shouldn't be surprised that those colleagues no longer propose ideas. So it's those little acts that increase the creative capacity of the organization and invite appropriate creativity. It, you're right. It's not running around like, sort of like Mad Hatters. <laughs> uh, and do you then subscribe to the view that creativity should be sense-checked by, say, accountants or, you know, people with, I suppose, maybe more scientific disciplines within the business? Like, should they be in, should they be part of the process or should they be the like the judge and jury of the creative process. Yeah. I, I think both. They should, probably should be part of the process and should consider what would be the return on, on an investment of the creative process. However, I think going back to my point that leaders have to create an environment where innovation thrives, those accountants, those finance people have to, I think, reconsider how they would look at the return on a given new idea. So because if a new idea is genuinely brand new, we tend to put a high discount. On, on what we expect, excuse me, a high premium on what we expect of the, on the return because it's unknown. As a result, we tend not to invest resources in any new idea. Instead, we take any discretionary uh, 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 capital and we put it in existing ideas to hopefully eke out a little bit more margin or a little bit more growth. And then after a while, it should not surprise us that our creativity uh, feels held back because all we're doing is trying to eke out fractional return on you know decades old, years old uh, ideas. And have you some examples, Adam, about maybe companies that have got this right? Maybe companies that we wouldn't maybe imagine or know for their creativity, but that they have done amazingly creative things around the creative culture. Yeah, I think a great example is Bosch, right? So we all probably have Bosch appliances in our in in our homes, uh, and and Bosch you know, said we really need to improve our our innovation. You know, we are ultimately an R and D engine. That's why people buy. There's it's either new products or fascinating, exciting new adaptations to existing products. So they actually thought about how do we combine the artistic, creative mindset with the scientific and the engineering mindset. So on the floor where they have their R&D uh, people and their engineers primarily, they threw in artists, artists in residence to help break up the thinking, to collaborate uh, with, uh, with those engineers. And of course, at first the engineers were a bit taken aback by that, didn't know how to collaborate with the artists in residence. But over time, they started to think about you know, new synergies, the meetings of minds and, and disciplines, and that created a sea change. So finally, then, could I ask you, Adam, um, do you think companies are now more creative than they were? Or, you know, is creativity just different for the time? I think we are starting to see the discipline of creativity creeping into some businesses and some industries who didn't place value on creativity itself. We still have a long way to go because I think there are still so many industries and companies who don't think of themselves as creative. But I think every organization has to think about how they can improve their adaptability, their innovation, and their inspiration, no matter what industry they're, they're in. So we do have a ways to go, but we are making baby steps. All right. Well, the 
Author was Adam Kingle. The book is called Sparking Success, and it's a refreshing look uh, at the business side of creativity and how one uh, should bring creativity into their business. So thanks for joining us today, Adam. That was very interesting. Thanks so much. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.